Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome as my co-host uh, this week is Lawrence Sutcliffe from the Highlanders Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Lawrence. Thank you, Mark. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, full of coffee, ready to go. Excellent. Uh, so we're predominantly going to discuss the, the various different guidebooks to Doctor Who today uh, that have been produced over the years. Um, first of all, um, I always like to hear when I've got a new co-host is how you got into Doctor Who, if you can remember the first story that you saw, things like that. My first story, I remember very, very clearly, it's episode two of Destiny of the Daleks. Um, I can't remember how I got to watch it, because I think I would have been, when it first broadcast, I would have been about five, nearly six. It did get a repeat the following year, so I'd have been about six coming on seven then. But I don't know which one it was, and I don't know why I only saw the one, because I liked it. I remember it very vividly, because it's uh, the cliffhanger from the previous episode is Davros coming back to life, and his hand beginning to twitch. Um, And the Doctor then escaping up the lift shaft and mocking the Daleks because they can't follow him. So it, it sticks in my mind very vividly, but why I only saw the one, I don't know. Because I don't think I found it particularly frightening. I've never found the Daleks to be menacing. In fact, if anything, I find them more intriguing because yeah. they, they are the antithesis of the Doctor. Um, but it was then a while, it was the first sort of story that I saw all the way through, and from then on I was hooked, was Keeper of Charkin. Um, and that one did scare me, so I'm surprised I stu- stuck with that. Although looking back at it now, I was thinking, how was the Melkor ever scary? Yeah. Oh, so it was the um, Melkor that was uh, that was scary, not not this sort of emaciated master or anything. That uh... no, no, it was it was the Melkor, yeah. um, this statue that came to life. Probably sort of an early thing of why the Weeping Angels work so well. Yeah. Um, sort of things that shouldn't move that do. Um, so, so although Tom Baker was really my first Doctor, he was gone within a couple of weeks of watching it. So for me, I was sort of think of Peter Davidson as my Doctor. And it's quite a heady sort of run to get introduced to it. Keeper of Truck and Legopolis and then Castor Alba. Yeah. So uh, I'm uh, looking back in hindsight, I think it's a bit of a surprise that it stuck with me. Yeah. I, uh, I watched Destiny of the Daleks again fairly recently, about a month ago. Um, and it is really good, isn't it? It's, um, it's, I think it's overshadowed a bit in the Tom Baker era, maybe by Genesis of the Daleks. Um, yeah. But watching uh, it in order... It's nice Davros uh, bringing him up to, up to the present, because he could easily have just been the creator who they don't bother to bring back. Yeah. Uh, I think it led to an over-reliance on it, because I think then every story until the new series is a, basically a Davros and Doctor story. Yeah. Uh, have done with a few a few less of them and, and just pure Dalek stories but I think he was a certainly I think he breathed creation because it added a human in inverted commas face to the to the Daleks um, and I think that's why I hadn't found them particularly menacing because they were a bit of, sort of the pepper pots yeah I think always the more humanoid things that that I found unnerving and was freaked out by but it is a good one it's got very nice play between um lala ward and tom baker yeah 
and I think it shows how well they then would go on to work as a as a pair. Yeah. Um, there's certainly chemistry there that isn't there with Mary Tam and Tom Baker. Yeah, no, and she she hits it straight away, doesn't she? Um, doesn't take yeah. her any time to 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 fit into the way they work together. She's she's just there in that first first story. It's great. Yeah, what I wonder if the experience of of Androids of Tara had sort of got her sort of into it, got her over that initial bump. And yeah, the Armageddon factor, well, isn't it? That she's uh, there, where, where she's um, Princess Astra. Yeah, because um, a lot of it, I think, is always feels to me that she's mocking Tom Baker, not the Doctor, yeah. but she's mocking the way Tom Baker portrays the Doctor. Um, and, and therefore, they can both have a bit of fun with it. So yeah. I think that's why they work well. Yeah. The bit would have been interesting had it, had it carried on from then, because there's some great stories that I would have, um, that I would have seen uh, yeah. the first time around. City of Death and uh, all the um, the Space trilogy, yeah. which... Uh, Horns I mean, of Naimon. I would have had to sit in Nightmare of Eden. Yeah, Horns of Naimon, <laughs> Creature from the Pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the thing that sort of surprised me watching Destiny Daleks again, which I hadn't really remembered from previous ones, is when the Doctor leaves Davros with the bomb, and then um, gets out of the bunker and then tries to activate it with his sonic screwdriver. Um, mm -hmm. By which point, two Daleks have taken it off Davros and they get blown up. Um, but it doesn't seem like a very Doctor move to do that. No, I think it's, I think it works in relation to the ethical conversation he has with himself in Genesis. Yeah. Does he have the right? And I think he really thinks in retrospect, he maybe made the wrong decision. Um, and that sort of Davros coming back cannot be a good thing. Mm. Um, and the Valens and the Daleks have fought themselves to stalemate and probably a stalemate between them is good for the rest of the universe. Giving one side the advantage isn't uh, a good thing. Yeah. So, oh, the Mabellans were one, I mean, it was nice to see the, their brief appearance in the last series, in the pilot. Yeah, it was great, um, wasn't it? But they're definitely one of the sort of classic villains I think would be nice to come back, because they, they never came across as too villainous. No. Uh, no but maybe way. people felt they were a bit too close to the Cybermen, just because they're another robot, just in human form. Yeah, I suppose the, their thing was they, they were only... Uh against the Daleks, weren't they? So they, they had that on the side. Was the Daleks were against every other race. Um, yeah. They, 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 you know, they were fine with the, with the, the Dr. Romana and the, the, the humans and the other kind of uh, slaves that were around on Scarrow. You know, posed them no threat. So uh, you were marginally on their side, I suppose. Uh, well, no, they, actually, they, destroyed, they tried to destroy the atmosphere, didn't they? They did. Well, they do, but it's kind of, it's almost like they're, they're forced into it. I mean, yeah. not forced because they don't have the same kind of emotion. But it's a logical progression for them. It's not out of malice. Yeah. Um, it's simply, well, this is the way we will deal with it. Yeah. Um, in some ways, they make me. They remind me a lot of a lot of the other robot things. You can imagine that the the Vox and the Dumbs of uh, of robots of death could potentially eventually evolve into Mavellans. Yeah. Because I do think. I can't remember the details, but I think they have always been a robot species. They aren't like the Cybermen. They aren't humanoid in origin. They're, they're just in may, maybe even sort of the remnants of a past civilization. The robots mm. have survived, but the people have died off. So, yeah. It would be nice. I don't remember, I don't remember the novelization 
for that one. It's a possibility that it didn't come out when I was reading those, because um, mm. I did. There were odd gaps at the time I was reading them in the early eighties. Mm. Um, sometimes they can be quite good at expanding. Yeah. Upon back. Yeah, I must. I must Although, have read that literally. one. It's one that did get novelised, isn't it? Um, some of them. I can't normally picture yeah. the cover, and I can't bring that one to mind. No, I can't. I've got a feeling I have read it, but um, I know it was like Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks were, were novelised very late, weren't they? Um, yeah. By John Peel and then Revelation of the Daleks has never been done, has it? I think I'm right saying. Is it something about Eric Saywood? I might be totally wrong about that. Uh, yeah. But there are odd, odd ones. I think also the, the ones that seem to come out really late were the ones that were either very much within a writer's grasp and then they maybe hadn't given up the rights to adapt it themselves yeah. or they were ones that were completely missing i think that's why um dalek master plan took so long and then came out in two really big volumes yeah because um, so much of the story missing at the time trying to work off a script and and make it all hang together because um, i don't think it's a story that actually does hang well together um, no uh, it's too, like bitty and things like that yeah it's two writers wasn't it um, it's okay then so you could go back and have a look at how the stories actually had unfolded rather than the way that particularly i think terence sticks used to used to cover up little mistakes when he did the novelization yeah to uh, expand on things he knew he didn't have the budget for as a, as a script writer yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was good at sort of tidying up plot holes and uh, and stuff like that, wasn't he? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah he is brilliant. Uh, I saw him at a convention, I think about 2012, um, and uh, hearing him speak and everything, and I just thought this this is the author who's I must have read more of his books by, than anybody else by a massive margin. Um, yeah, he's. Don't really think of it like that, but yeah, just, you know, kind of, because uh, I started watching as well with season 25 and partway through season 25, I didn't get much Doctor Who when I started watching it. So then I went back and I found all the novelizations and, and you know, tore through them all. Uh, so I read them all in quite a short space of time. Um, but Because yeah, uh, for, for so long, that was the only way that you could get to them. Yeah. The, at, the, at the, my sort of peak of interest in it as a teenager was just as the videos started coming out, but they were prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and quite often, uh, at the time, I was part of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, and, and they would be sort of handed around, or you would go around to somebody's house to watch them. Yeah. Um, so I never and, knew any uh, of the fans when I was... Great. Yeah. I never knew any of the fans growing up, so I... Uh... Uh, it was quite a lone sort of pursuit. And then when they started repeating them on UK Gold, uh, my auntie had Sky, so she would record them for me, and that was how I got to see most of the old ones. And then uh, gradually collected them on video, um, and then uh, they were obsolete, and the DVD started coming out. Uh, so I've just finished my DVD collection this year, um, which I've been collecting since 2000. It's taken me sort of 17 years uh, to, uh, to, to gather all those up as well. Uh, but uh, there's no sort of um, HD versions on the horizon, so uh, hopefully this is the uh, <laughs> this yeah. is it now for. No, I, it's John that got me back into it. I, I liked it and stuff, and then when the new series came up, I went round and we watched the first episode together with some other friends, 
but he gave me a copy of Brain of Morbius yeah. for my birthday one year, and that was me sort of back in. Although I'd be much stricter this time around, because before it was just anything Doctor Who related. Um, so, so the Doctor Who cookbook and yeah. David Banks with various strange books about the history of the Cybermen. And yeah. Basically yeah. anything I could get my hands on. Well, yeah. Um, well, time I so pretty much kept it to the the DVDs and uh, a couple of reference books. Yeah, I was I was sort of the same when I was younger. I think it, a lot of it was sort of easy presents to buy for me as well from family. But I had the uh, the cookbook, the knitting pattern book, um, you know, <laughs> the stuff that they would bring out, like the postcard book and stuff like that. That just yeah didn't really have any value at all in terms of no information or <laughs> like that in it. Oh. Um, and the post yeah, I don't think I ever got the knitting pattern book. I did, but I do remember <laughs> once doing a dinner for friends, all out of the cookbook. <laughs> this is the, the the Dalek, the soup with the Dalek crotons, isn't it? And uh, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I I seem to remember that the main course was Dastari sticky ribs or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> was a big connection to the uh, to the two doctors story. Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of it, I think, was. Um, it was determined more by what puns they could make or what tenuous link to the to the cast or crew than um, than if it if it was their favourite recipe, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, so obviously, Doctor Who's not on at the moment. Um, but any any sort of um, bits of news or anything caught your eye recently? Uh, the most current thing is obviously the BBC are giving a little push to Sarah Jane Adventures again because it's ten years since they. Uh, were first broadcast, um, arguably the most successful spin-off from Doctor Who. Yeah. Or Canine and Company 2, as it should probably yeah. directly be called. Um, so they're good. It's made me kind of want to go back a little bit and, and watch them. I've got them all on DVD, and it's something I dipped in and out of a bit, because I think when it was good, it was very good. Yeah. But it was aimed at a lower sort of age group than mine. What I'm looking forward to is hopefully my niece, as she gets older, will be interested in that as well. I think it'd be a fun thing to watch. Yeah. With her, she's of the right age. Yeah, I've watched but, them since they originally broadcast, but I didn't really. Ten years has just gone by so quick, you know. I think Doctor Who's been back twelve years now. Sarah Jane's ten years old. It's uh, uh, it's crazy how um, you when you think sort of. I don't know. Cause I say because I started watching Doctor Who towards the end, and then really got into it. Um, you know, as it finished, everything seemed so long ago. But even at that point, you know, it was only the same amount of time now since you know Destiny of the Daleks, Destiny of the Daleks, and things like that were on as to when I started watching. But it, it just seemed um, probably because I was younger as well, and time goes much slower, doesn't it? Um, but it it does, yeah. all the stuff seems so much older, and it's oh, that was ages ago, but. Uh, when you think that, that Rose and, and, and the Sarah Jane adventures now are all the start of the amount of time, it's nothing, is it? It's, uh, it's crazy. No, there's people who've grown up with it and moved on, and God, it's not going to be too long before those people are introducing their kids to it. Yeah. Things like that. It's a little bit frightening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, uh, so the other thing um, recently, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago maybe, and I was in the news, um, about Bradley Walsh potentially being cast in the new series of Doctor Who. Um, I think the yeah. the mirror had it as the companion, um, but I think it's potentially more likely he's, he's a companion's father or maybe some other kind of semi-regular recurring 
regular mm. recurring role, but not every week, maybe. Something a bit like um, maybe Mark Williams as when he was Rory's dad. Yeah. That yeah. would work quite well. He's been in it before because he's in one of the Sarah Jane adventures. Is he, the, uh, he played one of villains. Is he a clown? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I can't I remember. Actually. Uh, a ringmaster or a clown type character. I think it kind of rings a bell, yeah. Um, but I'm not, a lot of people sort of threw their hands up in despair and I'm not, I'm not too bothered by it. I've seen him in a few things as John, obviously most people know him as a quiz show host and a comedian. Yeah. Um, he can act when he's been in things. Um, and it doesn't, when the new series started, one of my fears was that we might drift back into that Colin Baker Sylvester McCoy era thing of stunt casting of yeah. just getting something in for the name recognition Ken, and sometimes Ken it worked really well I think Nicholas Parsons in Curse of Fenric is fantastic Yeah. other times didn't work so well I, I'm, I'm no disrespect to him because I think he's very comedian but Ken Dodd in Delta and the Bannerman is really uncomfortable Yeah. because uh, it's like well how can we fit that character that he has his persona into a story, and that wasn't the way to do it. No. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised with the way that they've integrated people um, who have a sort of a cachet. Yeah. That they bring to the show, and I think they're quite sensitive about making sure that they don't overpower the main storylines. Um, it isn't just a story you watch to go, "Oh, look, so and so's in it." Yeah. They they do do it quite well I so think, yeah I, I think it'd be quite nice um there's a potential for good humor with it as well i mean knowing that he kept, that he comes from a comedy background um i'm interested to see with the new series obviously because uh, joey whitaker's now the doctor are they going to play with assumptions of, about gender roles um how is the Doctor going to operate as an authority figure when, by default, most people tend to defer to a male character? So yeah. if, if, there's a male, if there's a male companion, are they going to sort of be doing sort of those kind of things? Um, so I, I could see Bradley Walsh working well as somebody who goes through a character development that sees them recognising that aspect of their personality and changing it and, and becoming more open. Yeah. Um, but it is too early. I mean, if he's not appearing until next series, um, there's still a long way to go uh, before things are nailed down. That's it. Yeah, and rumours this early on as well can be, uh, <laughs> can be miles out, can't they? Um, yeah, I mean, he could be in one episode or two episodes and things like that. So. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think he they did have a quote from him which seemed to confirm that uh, that he is in it, um, but it, that it's not going to interfere with his filming schedule for The Chase, um, which I suppose for overseas listeners, is uh, it's like a daily daytime quiz show that we have here uh, that's hosted by Bradley Walsh. Um, but yeah, I think the first time I was aware of Bradley Walsh was... He was comedy partners with Joe Pasquale, which is probably in the 90s. And I think was it? They worked together. I yeah. Um, and I think they had, I don't think it lasted very long, but there was some kind of sketch show or um, 
maybe like a sort of a Morecambe and Wise type thing where they had guests on and, and did a few sketches and, and different pieces, bits and pieces like that. Um, but yeah, he's, he, and he acted in the, um, probably the, maybe he's acting what he's best known for here is Law and Order UK, which I believe um, Chris Chibnall was um, head writer or at least a big he part was, of. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's the kind of the connection uh, if, uh, with with the you know with the new regime. If you brought Jodie Whittaker from Broadchurch and uh, and and Bradley Walsh from Law and Order UK, uh, which I watched a few episodes of Law and Order UK, and I think they were re- retelling um, stories from the American series because um, I know the, the credits would always say based on uh, and then a different story by somebody else. Uh, so they're just kind of retelling it for the British justice system sort of thing. Um, but I think Chris Chibnall did write a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, i tell you what would be an interesting way to go with him, thinking of that police authority figure from Law and Order. Um, John, our friend John, is a very big fan of City of Death, and he holds that Duggan in that is the best yeah. companion that never became a companion. I, c- I could see Bradley Walsh doing a similar sort of Duggan-esque type character. Yeah, and that, that could be very well. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be an interesting dynamic if he is the companion because it's been uh, it's been a long time since they've had a companion who appears to be older than the Doctor. Um, yeah, I mean, really, probably going back to the Brigadier um, and the Unit members in the seventies. After that, they're all at least physically younger looking than the Doctor. Yeah. And it did work really well with uh, Bernard Cribbins, didn't it? And not not uh, not that he was particularly a full time companion, but that relationship yeah. um, with uh, you know as, as Wilf, that relationship with an older older character is is really good. Um, and thinking about the um, the big finish stories Colin Baker did with um, Maggie Stables as um, oh, what was her name Evelyn. I think she had a companion called Eveling, and that was quite nice as well. Uh, she was an older female companion, um, I think a lecturer or something like that, um, and, and worked really nicely. Um, so it's, yeah, it was uh, uh, something totally different um, and something yeah. that, that potentially worked very well. Um, yeah, and it goes right back to the beginning. I mean, I've always been a fan of uh, Ian and Barbara yeah. in, in the early stories. I think that dynamic works well, especially when you've got a a doctor who, in retrospect, is quite unsympathetic and difficult to relate to. So you do have sort of the the teacher, quite literally, figures who who explain things. You've got Susan and then Vicky as the more sort of identifiable role, uh, particularly if you had weak ankles. Yeah. <laughs> good character relate. I don't mm. know. I hope Susan got better ankles when she re- when she regenerated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always, I've always, whenever she walks across the screen, I'm worried, even though I know she doesn't always do it, that she's suddenly going to collapse, grabbing her, grabbing her foot and having to have a cold yeah. handkerchief <laughs> pressed against it. Yeah, and, th- and um, think about um, Catherine Tate and Matt Lucas as well. That's a similar sort of uh, kind of comedy background where, uh, as you say, a lot of people kind of reacted negatively to the news to begin with. Yeah, that they were, you know, joining uh, the cast, but you know, both um, largely really successful and popular. 
Um, yeah, particularly Catherine Taylor. I would, I would, very well Catherine was the first one where I kind of went, oh, she's popular. Are they just giving her a role with that? And actually, it's brilliant. Mm. She's one of my, the character of Donna and the whole plot line she goes through her development is one of my favourites. Yeah. Um, she's very good. Not just the new stuff. Yeah. And the Matt Lucas stuff, just hilarious. He was, it was a, one of those things where actually if he, if, uh, if Nardole wasn't in an episode of the last series, it was like, oh, yeah. Nardole, just, he doesn't have to be in the whole thing. Just come in, five yeah. minutes, <laughs> just give them the other tip and a look. I would yeah. be quite happy. Yeah, he's um, very, very good. Um, and I think this would be a similar sort of thing, you know, people, uh, they'll, they'll come around to it, I imagine. Uh, but that's part of being a Doctor Who fan, isn't it? Is uh, <laughs> imagining that every piece of news is going to be a disaster and lead to cancellation. So, yeah. Uh, so the other thing that caught my eye this week, it's been, been on Twitter, the, uh, the official 2018 Doctor Who calendar. Um, and I guess this is the last year that they'll do it, really, is they've got a different Doctor for each month. Um, the Presumably March, I think. I can't see. I've got a screenshot, but I can't, it doesn't say which month it is. But presumably March is John Pertwee. So they've got a picture of the Doctor, a few sort of um, photos around the, of their adventures around them, and then a quote underneath. Uh, and the quote for John Pertwee is, I only need two things, your submission and your obedience to my will. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, That's the master, isn't it, though? Yeah, it's the master from the demons, um, which you'd think, I mean, even a passing uh, familiarity with the, the series for the calendar of which you're working would, uh, <laughs> would have told you is not something the doctor would say. Um, but yeah, it's led to quite a few uh, nice kind of threads on Twitter of um, kind of mocked up calendars with uh, uh, quotes from the doctors, but they're actually from you know their villains uh, from yeah. their, from their run. So yeah, that was uh, that was quite amusing. I don't know whether they've got time to uh, to reprint that or anything, but <laughs> that's uh, a little, little oversight there. Yeah, yeah, I don't think. Um, don't think whoever was copy and pasting uh, quite got the right uh, the right place there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, the main um, kind of uh, body of the episode today, we're going to look at the the guides uh, to Doctor Who that have come out over the years. Um, yeah. I don't. Did you buy the the Doctor Who magazine special edition that came out recently? The uh, referencing the Doctor. I, I did. That's a bit of serendipity. We're right on the. Uh... Um, with popular culture there, right on the pulse. Yeah, to be honest, I, I saw that, and um, because you see so many kind of like mocked up books and calendars and stuff, <laughs> I didn't think it was real. Um, right. That it was a magazine about the reference. I thought it was too sort of, um, I don't know, I thought it was a spoof basically that <laughs> they'd have done it. And then I saw it in the shop and I thought, oh, that is real. Uh, so I bought it, yeah. So that's um, that's quite an interesting look at, at all aspects of, of Doctor Who references, and not just the program guides, but the uh, uh, the all the stuff like behind the scenes and uh, the uh, the attempts to to link all of Doctor Who into a single coherent continuity. Oh yeah, that that uh, wonderful thing. Yeah, which <laughs> um, is weird, isn't it? Something that. Um, I don't suppose. I suppose all of it really is, is, you know, kind of Doctor Who fans. They want to catalogue things and list things, and um, but yeah, that that always seems a particularly difficult thing to do with Doctor Who because so many different, so, so many different voices and production teams working on it. 
who didn't spare yeah. a second thought for anything that had gone before to try and put everything into one coherent thing is, uh, yeah, it's an odd thing. I think it's maybe a, a human nature thing. You want, you want order out of chaos. Yeah. Um, but you're quite right. That, that's simply not the way it was made. Um, yeah. I mean, on, on sometimes even week to week, there's, uh, there's conflicts of <laughs> uh, continuity and things like that, or story to story, somebody going, completely different and then when you start throwing in things like the novelizations and one of the the, the uh, David Whitaker's adaptation of the Daleks which is one of the, the first ones to come out it's a completely different story about how Ian and Barbara sort of join yeah um, so you kind of have to sort of have that in your head and then forget about it but I think I can see the certainly understand the appeal of it and there's a nice sort of thing about being respectful or, or at least acknowledging the other stories. I, I've always quite wanted to have a Doctor Who story where he acknowledges that there are other versions of himself in that time period somewhere else in the world. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know, a story that while he's over in China so with Marco Polo, he's also somewhere else in the world doing something and somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I thought that would always, because it doesn't even have to impact on the story. It can just be a little throwaway acknowledgement that makes the fans smile. Yeah, because uh, of course, um, while he's been a lecturer at Bristol University, um, that 50-year span there, there's m many, many, many versions of him been running around. You know, that's um, yeah. presumably encapsulates the unit era, um, plus, you know, any stories that happened in the 80s. All of the uh, the stuff with with Rose and everything on the Powell estate, and, and any time he's visited contemporary Earth in the, in the modern series, um, yeah, yeah, and that would explain him not really getting involved as much. I, I suppose you know he's uh, he's sort of not travelling and not not doing too much during that time, is he? Um, I suppose he knows that other doctors are around uh, or have been around uh, and are taking care of a lot of the problems that are happening. Yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, it raised all kinds of fun and arguing over a pint in the pub time questions about while the older doctors are having their adventures, is he there because he hasn't got old enough to be there yet? Um, and things like that. I mean, and which timelines that sort of innate knowledge that the time lords seem to have as to which time things they can interfere with and which ones yeah. they can't. Um, I mean, it does make sense. Obviously he can't go about and mess about with his own past and things like that. Um, but it would have been it would have been a nice resolution for the um, I know I know they tied it up as Missy doing it, but the um, the notice in the window for Clara about having her computer fixed and it gives the doctors time. Would have been a nice payoff to leave that way further along and then just yeah. have the doctor do that um, at some point in his own future. Yeah, yeah, that could. Have uh, been, I do. Uh... I do like the guides. They can be. Certainly, as I said earlier, there's a time when they were really the only way you could find out about a lot of the stories um, before if the novelization wasn't available or you weren't old enough to have seen it the first time round. Uh, I, I remember having um, Jean-Marc L'Officier's program guide, and that was sort of like a Bible um, yeah. for trying to keep track of what, what was going on and who was there. It was a bit, a bit dry, um, sort of very much fact-based and 
if I remember it correctly, it's it's a bit skimpy on, on synopsis. I seem to remember that it doesn't give the outcomes very often. Yeah. Um, it just sort of gives you the setup and leaves it there. Um, but something like that was, was really good. And the referencing the Doctor special that you mentioned, flicking through that, so many books that I used to have, so Key of Time, the books on the early years, because I did... I. I was also really interested in the background yeah. to it, so they were they were fantastic for me. Some so many hours pouring over sort of discussions about costume design and set design and, and the writers, um, and certainly Doctor Who seemed to be used quite often for BBC books about how television itself was made. Yeah, um, there's the I think uh... early eighties called produce, producing television, and and it's like the case study. Is Doctor Who doesn't make anything of it on on the cover of the book, um, but it then just follows through a typical process from script writing through to the broadcast. Yeah. The so, uh, the pro- the program guide you mentioned the the John Mark Lafissier one. Um, that's the first one that I got. Um, you, you know the original one. It's sort of two hardback books with the first five yeah. Doctors on. Um, it would have been a about I think about 1990 or 1991, um, I'd been like the first or second year of senior school, um, and I got uh, got second in a short story writing competition, um, and the prize was a book token. Uh, but they actually took us to this um, this sort of book warehouse on an industrial estate um, outside okay. the, the town where I lived in, which I previously had no idea existed. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, yeah, it was kind of like I wouldn't take this bookshop, but I never knew it was there before. I went many times after that, um, and I found these two. Um, they were the only sort of Doctor Who books in there were these two hardback, and they they I think came out in 1981, so they'd been there for like a decade. And nobody had bought them, um, and I didn't know they existed or anything because I was just kind of reading the Target books and stuff. Um, and I remember the teacher that took us. Um, I think it was keen for us to buy something that we would keep, you know, as a, as a, as a memento, you know, for winning this prize or something. And I remember him saying, are you really still going to be interested in Doctor Who in a few years' time? And I went, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've still got them, of course, on my shelf. Um, but, yeah, as a kid, I would pore over them because I hadn't seen most of these stories. Um, and, you know, there's companions that I'd never seen or even read about in the, in the Target books and stuff. So I'd sit and read, but like you say, they have very, very short synopses. Um, they don't give much away, and then there's like who directed and wrote and, and starred in each one. Um, yeah. And they're not really something you would sit and read now. Um, they would, I would only use them if I wanted to check who wrote or directed something. Or like when I moved house, I wanted to check what order my DVDs go in when I put them back on the shelf. <laughs> uh, I would refer to it then. Um, but yeah, it's weird when you're a kid, like say, uh, anything like that, I would just sit and pour over it and learn it. Uh, it's, uh, I, th- I think for a long time that was the guide to Doctor Who. Because um, I think really it was only once the show went off air and maybe compu- personal computers became a thing that people had more. People started producing their own things. You started to see more fan magazines being produced that looked into the history of it. Because although Doctor Who magazine was enjoyable, it, at that time, as I remember it, it didn't dig into the past of the series very much. Not like the current 
version yeah. where you get a focus on one older story and you and you might get a, nearly a dozen pages and it's, they're very useful some quite detailed information about the productions and things um but i think until the early 90s when the discontinuity guide came out yeah i think that was the next big one and that just took a far more irreverent approach yeah to it the discontinuity um, guide i absolutely love i've got i've got a copy here um it's yeah. it's uh, paul connell martin day and keith topping um and it's just it was it's a really witty kind of version of it isn't it and it's they use this on the bbc doctor who website uh when you go into the the old series um yeah they they've got quotes so, so the um on this one it's kind of broken down you've got um so you've got a bit of that i haven't actually got the plot you've got sort of you've got roots so things that have influenced it uh goofs so that's kind of any continuity errors anything that doesn't make sense uh, double entendres, uh, dialogue disasters and dialogue triumphs, uh, yeah. continuity, so how it links into the other Doctor Who stories, um, and then just kind of like locations, links to other stories, uh, and then they give a bit of a, uh, uh, a view on it at the end, so a bit of um, a review of what they think That's of the story, don't they? Okay. Yeah, which you don't get in, in the, um, the programme guide. It is just purely factual. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I was looking through the, um, the you, you mentioned the kind of the big format books that came out, the Peter Haining ones. There's Doctor Who, mm. The Celebration, which came out for the 20th anniversary. Oh, yeah. Um, Had the balloons on the cover, didn't it? Yeah, and that one's got um, Jeremy Bentham writing um, a programme guide um, as far as it goes up to, um, which I was reading through. Um, and it's um, it's sort of a mixture of some of them are it just he just relays the plot, some of them where he's got some a bit of sort of background information or like little making of anecdotes he's put in, and a few of them he sort of gives a bit of a review and gives his own views on it. Um, but what strikes me writing through is the only one he's got anything well there's only two he's got anything negative to say about. He talks about the space pirates being a bit slow and a bit kind of laborious. Um, but he really tears into the gunfighters. Um, like, he's just got nothing kind of good to say about it whatsoever. Um, and I think kind of read, read in other places since then is that that really shaped opinion of that story for quite a while because it wasn't available. Uh, you know, when the book came out in 1983, it was a long time before it was on video and things like that. So, so people thought Yeah, you had was. to rely on somebody else's goodwill. So it was a real surprise to me because um, I got, I think it's... I want to say Joe Cotton, who did the novelization. Yeah. Don Cotton. But as, I, as I recall, it doesn't mention anywhere in the novelization that that there's music in the no. TV episode. Yeah, that's it. He, uh, uh... So when I finally got around to see it, and, you, and it begins with a, a ballad, it's like, hold on, this isn't like any other Doctor Who story. Yeah, it's, it's completely different, isn't it? Um... And it's not, um, and it's not as bad as his reputation suggests. Uh, I think as well, um, because it, within that same kind of guide, he's got nothing negative to say about the time monster, or time flight, or other ones that. Um, uh, yeah, that don't have good reputations. Yeah, Doctor's less celebrated adventures. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's weird. He's just totally, totally got it in for the gunfighters. 
Um, yeah, which I thought was, uh, yeah, quite an odd. It sort of sticks out for that reason. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a weird sort of thing there. Um, I think you are, when, when you don't have access to the stories, you are at the mercy of somebody else's opinion on them. So, And I think it's, I, I wouldn't, I, it's the, the problem with the program guide, as you say, it's very neutral. It's a, it's a presentation of facts and data and statistics, which, yes, there's certainly, as we were saying earlier, when we first came across those books, that's what we wanted. But then you do want to go a bit more. Um, I can't remember, with Discontinuity Guide, is it an, um, an official sort of book of the Doctor Who ones, or was it um, an unauthorised one? It's, uh, it's published by Virgin, yeah, so it was, they had the license, didn't they, in the 90s. It's got the, uh, it's got the yeah. logo on the front, um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's official. Um, so I think that's, that's the thing, the official ones, there is a, not necessarily a party line to tow, but you can't, I don't think it would go down well if you really started giving a particular story a kicking. No. Um, whether it is dirty or not. Um, and I think that's why, I've, as, as I went back to Doctor Who, I decided that I would go for, for an unauthorised one. I mean, my, my reference guide of choice is about time, yes. um, which it, I think is really good. I mean, it does, it does have all the raw data you want, um, but it's not afraid, the writers there, um, Tat Wood and Lawrence Miles, um, are not afraid to express their opinion, even when they would they disagree about stuff. That's that I think leads to some of the best yeah. entries on stories. If one of them likes it and the other doesn't, because they'll put both versions, their their critique and their defence in. Yeah. Um, and hey. it is again a bit like the discontinuity guide. It has a lot of sundry information. Um, <laughs> they do they do attempt the the overarching timeline and, and they make some pretty persuasive arguments about some stuff but at the same time they don't try to hammer a square peg into a round hole no. uh, and they do recognize that there are major issues particularly the one that most fans discuss is the uh, um, the unit timeline yeah um, and the mess that that is yeah uh, and that, that was a lovely little nod when to, even the doctor doesn't know whether when he worked for them in I think that's Suntara and Stratagem when they yeah when Unit comes back into the new series when he can't remember whether it's the seventies or eighties yeah and the same in the Day of the Doctor um, when um, uh, Kate Stewart makes a reference to the three Doctors and she says it's in the seventies or the eighties depending which yeah. <laughs> which dating uh, kind of performer whatever you use yeah so. Yeah, it's uh, it's become now like a hanging the lantern on it, hasn't it? We're just not going to uh, not going to tackle it. We'll just uh, make a joke of it, sort of thing. Yeah, I've I, I really like the about time books. They are forensic detail, aren't they? On uh, on each story. Um, yeah. Again, just um, they they break down. They look at uh, like a brief synopsis, firsts and lasts. So the first time you'd see something, Doctor, the last time you see it. Things to notice, continuity, um, but the bit that's always quite uh, can be quite amusing is the um, is it called like that doesn't make sense? Yeah, things that don't make sense. Yeah, um, and that's where the, and stuff that is right there, but I, I'd never sort of thought about. Even um, when I was um, sort of preparing for this podcast, I was flicking through volume one, which covers the Hartnell era, um, and even right there in an earthly child, 
they point out, you know, the, the doctor um, isn't happy about Ian and Barbara having stumbled across the TARDIS um, and he's worried that they're going to tell everybody. He tells them it's a time machine <laughs> and then worries. Yes. <laughs> then worries. Oh, I, was like, oh, I never thought about that before. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, really entertaining books. Um, I've only got actually the yeah. first six volumes, um, which covers the classic series. But I believe from what I think it was the Doctor Who magazine review that the the volume seven starts uh, with the new series. Um, it does. I, I have a copy here. Uh, come up on the camera yeah. that we're chatting over. That's it. Yeah, yeah so it covers the, the series child. one and two, so yeah. two thousand five to six. But I think from um, what... so um, the. Christopher Eccleston series, and then the first of the David Tennant's. And I think the next volume, volume eight, is due out this November. Ah, great. Through, uh, through Mad Norwegian Press. I think uh, it's, it's now just one of them. It's just Tatwood who does it on his own now. So given that these are fairly doorstop-size editions, I think they, they do take a while to pull all the information together. Yeah. The essays are the thing, one of the things that I think it makes it a particularly good um, thing because they sometimes they'll be about things that are within the the Hooniverse. So there's like um, technical things about the evolution of the Cybermen and things like mm. that. But they'll also then talk about things around the world. So from volume. Which volume, volume 5, which is 80 to 84, so principally the Peter Davidson years. Um, their essays, the first one is the John Nathan, tier, Nathan Turner era, what was the difference? And then they bookend that with the John Nathan Turner era, what went horribly wrong? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they could get the two things. And uh, did Doctor Who magazine change everything and stuff like that? So it, it's, it's quite, I think it's a very good, set of essays for contextualizing the series in the real world as well as within its own world yeah uh, and what i've not had a look at that i understand is is popular the black archives do you know those at all yeah i've read um two of those so far um but i do i do mean to get more of them uh the rose one um which i, I can't remember who wrote it and the one on the massacre which is by uh, james curay smith um, who's writing, I always really enjoy. I follow him on Twitter. Uh, he posts links to... He writes for um, New Statesman and uh, Hero Collector, I think it's called. Um, always kind of about kind of geek culture, I suppose you'd call it. Uh, and his is excellent on the massacre. Because um, it's a period I didn't really know anything about as well. Um, that Those are really, really... Uh, those two, anyway, the two that I've read, they're all obviously by different people. Very, very well written. Uh, and some interesting right. ones coming up as well. James Curie Smith's got another one coming out, I think, on the Ultimate Foe. Um, and Una McCormack has got one on Curse of Fenric, which is one of my all-time favourite stories. So uh, I'll be Great. be getting that one. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what kind of format? What approach to the format do they take? Um, I don't think there's a. I think I might be wrong with this because I've only read two. I don't know if there's a set format. Um, it's basically like um, an extended essay. They're quite they're quite slim volumes, um, and yeah, they, they. 
I don't, I, you know, I'm, like I'm, personal, you, personal responses to the stories. Then. Yeah, um, a lot of, um, I mean, James Curry Smith's one, fantastic well-researched, as I say, about the period and everything, um, and a lot about the Hartnell era and what was going on at that time, uh, you know, with the um, you know, the possibility of William Hartnell being written out uh, and maybe Stephen Taylor being the main character, you know, rather than replacing the Doctor, because uh, at a time yeah. when um, they were kind of wanting to get rid of William Hartnell, basically. Um, I've got on the table in front of me. I've got tons of books, and I haven't got one of the Black Archive ones. Uh, I didn't bring it right. down, so <laughs> so I can't really. I can't kind of bring it to mind. Um, but they are, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend them anyway. Uh, the ones that I've read. Um, going back to the about time, I don't know if as you've got volume seven. I don't. From what it, the Doctor Who magazine review seems to be saying that they were quite dismissive or quite scathing about the new series. Is that something that you found um, or? It's it's the one Lauren Smiles isn't involved with that one. Uh, it's it's Atwood on his own. Mm. I seem to remember it's been a while since I had a flip through it. I seem to remember they're not overly fond of the Christopher Eccleston one, mm. uh, Christopher Eccleston series. Now whether that's because of Christopher Eccleston or the early sort of first series while they're still sort of finding their feet and deciding how the show is going to be. Um, and I, I don't think that's a problem. I, I, don't, I don't think everything needs to be um, to praising everything and saying, saying it's all wonderful. Yeah. I don't have a recollection of it being um, unfair at least or, mm. or particularly biased. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, as it, as it is an unauthorized one, it does mean that they can express their own opinions more forcefully, yeah. and maybe that's somebody's sort of I don't know. Somebody's favorite episode got a bit trampled on, and yeah, so having it back. It's, um, it's very subjective. But uh, I think for something that does what the about time guides do. I think it would be strange if you agreed with everything that's written. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting and, and, and useful to read things that you don't agree with, I think, as well. Um, another series that I like are the TARDIS Ereditorums by um, Philip Sandifer. And if you come across these, uh, he's got a blog of the same name. Um, and then he collects them together into a book with extra essays and things. Um, so he'll look at the stories for each era um, also look at some of the maybe the big finishes and the missing adventures or past doctors adventures that slot in um, and uh, yeah they're very interesting I don't always agree um, with, with them but he always has an interesting take uh, and a lot of uh, yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in those ones as well so um, I yeah, that's, those. yeah that is something that about time does as well they, they acknowledge big finish thing. if a big finish story is particularly pertinent to what's what they're discussing, they will bring it into the conversation. Yeah. I'd say I'm not, I'm not a just simply because of cost and space and things like that. Big Finish is something that I have avoided. I've heard mm. one or two, and and I quite enjoy them, but I just decided no, I'll I'll sort of draw the line there. I'll just keep it to what's on the television. Yeah. Um, although there have been some that I've been really tempted by when. Um, just this for the last series the 
the Cyberman story, which draws heavily on a Peter Davidson adventure, and I've forgotten which. Spare parts. Yes, yeah. spare parts. And I thought, oh, that, that does sound interesting. I'm having a listen to that, but I know it's a it's a slippery slope if I get yeah. one because I quite like the sound of it. Yeah. Um, I should maybe look at download. Obviously, it's cheaper then, but there is that physical format going, well, what if they, they yeah. do what the BBC shop didn't shut down and everything disappears? Um, yeah, it's um, it's these ones you do download um, uh, and keep, whereas the, the BBC store was uh, slightly different, wasn't it? Um, yeah, more like a lending library. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, the the big finish ones. And if well, if you buy a physical one, you get the download and and the CD. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, like I say, cost wise, um, impossible to keep up with. But I, the older ones, I think the first fifty you can get on CD for five pounds and download for three or four, something like that. Um, and there's some great ones in that first fifty. Spare parts, I'm sure, is one of the first fifty. Uh, and there's a lot a lot of good ones in there. Um, so yeah, they're worth worth trying a few, especially spare parts. Is is uh, kind of rightly recognised, I think, as one of the uh, one of the greats. Yeah, it's, um, and one of the things that's nice, of course, with the whole big finish thing is there aren't enough stories for some doctors. I mean, if you're if you're a Colin Baker fan, then really slim pickings on TV. Yeah, uh, and I understand from what I've read the reviews. Actually, his audio adventures um, are much better than his TV stuff. Obviously wasn't getting the interference uh, in the production of those, but it's something, it seems to be something that he's particularly settled down into doing, and he's been able to, to do a lot of the character development with the Doctor, which the, his short run on television didn't allow him to do, and therefore I think has left most viewers with a, a fairly sort of low opinion of his Doctor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a shame, because I've seen him in other things. I mean, he's certainly somebody who can act, yeah, yeah, he's he's really made the most of it. I think he's uh, he's playing the Doctor much more avuncular, um, and uh, and and gets some gets some really good stories as well. And and it was Paul McGann, of course, who uh, with with barely yes. any screen time um, has massively expanded his canon. And uh, there's some terrific stories. His when he because he was the sort of the current Doctor when he when he had started doing Big Finish, they brought his out of seasons. And the first two yeah. seasons of his are excellent. The other stuff's good as well, but particularly that first two years, uh, there's some really great stories in there. Uh, yeah, worth yeah. Uh, worth trying. Yeah, definitely. Interesting to see. I understand that David Bradley's just signed a contract to do some big finish stuff, reprising yeah. the first Doctor. Uh, with the so. with the whole cast as well that he uh, uh, from an adventure in space and time who. The actors that were playing um, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill and, and um, Caroline Ford. Caroline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, <laughs> managed to get the. They should just carry on, just make some new first Doctor stories, just using them. Yeah, that's it. Just um, yeah, there must be some old black and white cameras lying around and stuff. They could uh, <laughs> they could remake some of them. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the Christmas press. I've always had a bit of a, a soft spot for multi-doctor stories, even even if they're really tenuous yeah. uh, ones. But even even the worst of them, um, I, I really enjoy, just simply for the fun fact of having two yeah. doctors there. Definitely. Um, yeah. So uh, so this one's one I'm, I'm really looking forward to, because I, I did think he was fantastic, David Bradley, and uh, um, I look forward to getting a 
a proper chance to see his interpretation of, of Hartnell's Nocturne as opposed to Hartnell. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and even from the few seconds we got at the end of the uh, the last episode, he look, looks like he's not going to do the sort of um, Richard Herndl, you know, playing him uh, as the stereotype, sort of very crotchety, abrasive kind of character. He did seem, you know, because that's, that's what people immediately think of, but it's not really borne out when you watch the old stories. Um, after the yeah. first few, you know, he, he's not like that. Um, but again, I think it's the, the early guidebooks, wasn't it? Who, you know, they always used crotchety and um, yeah, uh, yeah, you see, that's it. All those adjectives uh, which kind of form an opinion. But um, once you watch a lot of them, he's he's not like that most of the time. Yeah, yeah. There is a patrician element to him. I was thinking about the trailer for the for the Christmas special that begins with Hartnell and then morphs into Bradley. And there is yeah. a softening of his voice. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's more emotion to it, which I think, actually, if you are doing Hartnell's Doctor today, you do need. Yeah. Um, I think a patrician authoritarian figure was acceptable in the 60s in a way that it's actually alienating now. It's, it's more like the way you would play the villain than the hero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, not long now. It's only three months. <laughs> uh, soon enough, though. Yeah. That's the uh, other sort of big reference guide we've not really mentioned yet is the complete history, yeah. the part work that, uh, that Egon Moss is doing. Is that something you went for? It is, yeah. I'm a, I'm a subscriber. Um, so I think um, I think it's maybe about halfway through by now, something like that. I think... Um, I meant to look this up actually. It'll be eighty-four or eighty-six volumes when it finishes. Um, yeah. But I don't know how far story-wise that goes. Whether that's the end of the Capaldi era, or whether it's up until the end of series sort of nine, which is where they're up to when the idea was conceived. Um, but uh, yeah, I've um, I've got a shelf full now. I've got the IKEA billy bookshelves in my study and it's, it takes yeah. up one full one of those uh and the the spines make up a picture of the first 12 doctors uh, I'm, quite... I'm a sucker for a spine and a image i yeah. had to stay like <laughs> well clear of it um and what's nice the ones that arrived uh on friday um i got volume 57 which covers voyage of the damned partners in crime and fires of pompeii has got the middle of christopher eccleston's face um, so I think that'll be most of his face made now. Some of them, uh, some pretty horrific images at the moment of doctors with half faces or um, kind of squashed up faces and things. So that'd be nice. I like, I like getting a face spine. So that's uh, when I slot that into place when I finish reading it, that'd be, that'd be nice. Uh, but these are based on the Doctor Who magazine. Um, you know, the uh, Andrew Pixley would do the, the archive features and then um, they're now, now called the Fact of Fiction and they're slightly different. Uh, so they've taken all the material from the old kind of ones that they did, the fact of fictions they do now, any new information that's come to light, um, and then do a really, really comprehensive look at, um, at, the, uh, at the stories. So the other, they, they come out fortnightly, um, but they post them out to subscribers four weekly, so you get two every four weeks. Uh, the same yeah. week year that the Doctor Who magazine, uh, which, is, uh, which is quite nice. Uh, so the other one that came out this week is Underworld, The Invasion of Time, and The Reboss Operation. Uh, so a mixed bag. 
but uh, yeah, they, they all follow a format of, um, there's a bit of an introduction, um, and as I was saying with some of the, the kind of the official stuff, uh, there's not really any, anything really negative. Um, so even stories like, um, like Underworld isn't, you know, that popular, it's not really a celebrated one. Um, so they talk about, um, you know, how the interesting stuff with that one is it introduced the idea of why the Time Lords don't interfere because they messed up the, uh, the development of, of a race, yeah, the minions, wasn't it, I think. Uh, yeah, so they, they, they focus on the positives and the interesting things in it from that story. Um, uh, but then there is a, a, there is a big page pull out that goes CGI, ah, yeah. <laughs> but not CGI, CSO. CSO, maybe, yeah. yeah. I mean, they talk about why, why that decision was made um, and why they thought it would work. Um, and uh, you know how they actually achieved it. There's a lot of production stuff, which is the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Uh, they do um, they break down exactly what happens in each episode, which is probably like the least useful part of it. The part I don't really read. Um, then it's split into pre-production, production, and post-production, um, with really really in-depth stuff on that. Broadcast, so it tells you sort of uh, the dates it was broadcast. Um, what countries it was sold to, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, merchandise, so it tells you when the book came out, who wrote the novelization, when it came out on video and DVD and whatnot. Cast and credits. And after each story, there's a, there's a profile, which we, kind of a double-page spread on um, cast or crew. So after Underworld, you've got one on Anthony Reed, who was the script editor. But you've got Mary Tam after the Reboss operation. And uh, not sure who the one is, but there's there's one after the uh, the invasion at the time there as well. Um, but really interesting books. I, I always read them every month as I get them. Um, and there's always kind of bits and pieces that um, that I didn't already know. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting, uh, I think it was a few months ago now, on the Power of the Daleks one, um, which David Whitaker wrote, that in the original script there's a line that um, almost kind of prefigures the time war. Um, there's a scene where the Doctor is staring outwards at the landscape, glowing in the weird moonlight of the Plutovian night. Did the Daleks destroy your home planet? asked Polly, to which the Doctor replied, I don't know, perhaps I'll never know. You see, we're left in the TARDIS before the end. Um, which uh, obviously is, I mean, kind of rubbishes the original continuity of the Doctor didn't know who the Daleks were before uh, the first time I landed on Scarrow. Uh, but it's interesting that even that early on, they were thinking about building up the myth of the Daleks, the threat they are to the Time Lords, um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, 50 years later, it's, uh, or, well, not that long, but, you know, when the new series came back, it was independently thought of as, uh, you know, that's how they got rid of Gallifrey, was Time War with the Daleks. So loads of interesting stuff like that. Um, I heard um, a thing relating to that, again, relating power of the Daleks into the time where is that the the capsule which they find that contains all the Daleks is actually another a vault like ah, the one from right. Doomsday yeah. and that it had got spent tumbling back through time yeah um, it is bigger on the inside it, isn't it on Venus where uh, where it then gets opened and actually the Daleks that are coming out are time war veterans yeah. ah interesting there's some there's some nice bits with that I um 
uh, uh, Power of the Daleks is a story I didn't know at all. I'd stopped buying the novelizations by the time that came out. So I only really knew it through synopses and things like that. So to see the recent animation, which is really lovely, um, suddenly made me think at the end of the episode, and there's a, a crumpled up Dalek all sort of smashed in just as the Doctor and Ben and Polly are going back. And I forget which of them it is, but one of them pats the Dalek on the head, and then they go into the Dal- into the TARDIS, yeah. and then obviously the camera moves across and the Dalek starts to reactivate. I suddenly thought, that's exactly like the Dalek in Rose, in, in, in Dalek, yeah. when Rose puts her hand on it and it absorbs her DNA. It's because she's um, a time traveller, isn't it? That it, um, yeah, it can absorb and restore itself um, through, yeah. yeah. So it did make me think. I wonder if who I wonder if that was something they were aware of when they were writing and making Dalek, or whether that's just one of these sort of serendipitous moments where it, a thing does seem to fit in and, and yeah. be a continuum. Yeah, that's the other the other big reference thing I suppose that we've not touched upon is rather than a book is the info texts on the DVD. All the DVDs. Yeah. I, I really like those. That's whenever I sort of was getting a new DVD, that was the sort of the thing, watch the story with the info text on. Yeah. And they were often really good. Um, quite quite on point because you quite often have a character turns up and you go, oh, I know them, they're from them, and then suddenly the info text come yeah. in. Oh, yes, yeah, see <laughs> Mr. Minica in, uh, in Rent-A-Goat and yeah. things like that. Um, yeah, they are really thing, uh, When they were shooting... Um, which is a nice way to keep it, keep it fresh, keep people informed. Um, I mean, I do think just by and large, BBC Worldwide did a fantastic job with all the blue the, the DVD releases. Yeah. Um, just the amount of information they packed into them. But I think the in, whoever decided to add the info text uh, was really onto a winner. Yeah, because it's not something you see um, on movies or anything, is it? It's. Uh... It's quite a unique. No, you get you get the the, the audio commentary. Mm. Um, I think I've got one or two yeah. films that do have something like that, but they do tend to be television programs yeah. rather than the fil- films. Uh, I think what one that does spring to mind is the. I think it's on the Matrix and Moulin Rouge. My copies of those they have like an in-screen video, so as you're watching the film, it'll suddenly divert away and tell you a bit about how a scene was shot or how bullet time was done in the matrix and things like mm-hmm. that. And they call it follow the white rabbit on matrix and it's the green fairy mm-hmm. on Moulin Rouge. But that's quite an unusual thing. They don't seem to want to break up the continuity of a yeah. film in the way that they're happier to do with TV. I suppose it's, TV episodes tend to be shorter. People are happier to go back to them and, yeah. and rewatch. They are. Um, you do get your money's worth because yeah, if you watch the story in its original form, you can watch it, say, with the info text. You can watch it with the commentaries with the cast and the crew. And a lot of them have the option of CGI effects as well now. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, so um, especially uh, Day of the Daleks, there's a lot of work on that, isn't there? Of um, the, uh, yeah, the battles, the future, and, uh, the future world. Yeah, there's some, uh, some really good stuff on that, yeah. Yeah, um, I think the first one that did it, was it? I think it was Ark in Space. When yeah. they they redid uh, Space Station Nerva, yeah, um, 
it, to make it look. I think it's the the scenes where the ships are docking and things like that. Yeah. So, and so they, they fixed all that, and then they left a man with a bubble wrap and green paint around his yeah. <laughs> so, But No, I, I quite like that. I know there were some people, some purists will go, oh, that wasn't how it was made and things like that. Because I, I remember that discussion going on when the recent reissues of the original series of Star Trek came out, mm. and they, they redid all the exterior shots of of the ship, so basically anything that didn't have a character in got redone with CGI. Ah, and yeah. you know, it, it marries up really well. Yeah. Um, the ships look beautiful. I mean, they they were quite good for their time anyway. Yeah. Um, but now you get really nice shots of shuttles flying into the Enterprise, the Enterprise in low orbit round planets, and you get proper sort of shadows of of stars and suns on on the ship. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not, uh, and I like that with the Doctor Who ones that you at least get the option to switch it off. That's it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, certainly the editions I've got of Star Trek don't give you that option. You're stuck with the new look. Um, it's born of contention but, with uh, the original Star Wars trilogy as well, isn't it? That you you can't buy the original theatrical releases. You can only buy them with the uh, all the the uh, approved. Yeah, yeah, the improvements that uh, George Lucas added in the, the late 90s special editions. So, uh, hand not shooting first being the most famous one, probably. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a, uh, it's a bit more think... intrusive, isn't it, really? That's that's actually changing this part of the story or, a, you know, kind of a character point, at least, rather than, you know, kind of background detail. Um, yeah, and the, I think the other big sequence for me that stood out was reintroducing Jabba the Hutt, yeah. Into Star because it's a deleted scene otherwise, but but it, it's kind of an awkward one because he was just going to be a guy, a big guy, a gangster, sort yeah. of type, and then of course by Return of the Jedi, Jabba is the big slug creature. So to try and work that into the footage they had, um, they made him a lot smaller, didn't they? And uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, yeah, not not seem no, no, but, definitely. Um, the other, um, the other guide I was thinking of, I don't know if you ever got these, uh, these I think these came out in the 90s as well, are uh, Doctor Who, the handbooks, which they did one for each of the first seven Doctors. I remember them, but I did, it was at a time then that I wasn't buying things, so I, I'd not got them. I think, uh, they, yeah, they came out 1994 to 1998. Um, so yeah, I, I bought each of those as they came out. Um, and similarly, they are um, like a bit of a, uh, a chronological view of each story. Um, there's the behind the scenes, the kind of casting crew stuff. Uh, they also tell you how many viewers and what chart position each story got in, uh, in when it was originally broadcast. Um, and these are by Hal Stammers and Walker, um, or some of them are just by Hal and Walker. Um, but and then and they each give um, their view at the end of each episode. Uh, or each story, rather, what they uh, what they thought of it. So you get uh, you get three different point of views on each one. And that's a good idea. Yeah. So, as you say, that does give somebody the chance to passionately defend the story they love that everyone else hates. Uh, yeah. I'd uh, I'd certainly be writing something positive about Warriors of the Deep. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I think it's one of the ones I've only seen once or maybe twice. Warriors of the Deep, uh, and it's a few years ago, so I do need to uh, do need to revisit that one. Um, yeah, I think it's underrated. The murker is something that just overshadows people's opinions of it. Yeah. Um, 
I really like it. How can you not like it? It's got Ian McKellop and Ingrid Pett in. Yeah. The Sea Devil and Silurians. It's a great story. Um, it's one I'm particularly fond of. Yeah. But I think there's always going to be a place for these reference guys, but I do wonder now that the series is so accessible in so many different ways, whether... I don't know that the, the, the younger sort of fans who are coming through. I mean, there'll always be the fans who want to know everything and they'll buy everything. Yeah. I wonder if there is that general readership out there that I think something like the program guide had, mm. um, or whether it has become something a bit more at the specialized end of the Doctor Who fan spectrum. Yeah, maybe more online as well. A lot of people now, especially younger people, will their first port of call would be to go online to look something up where you've got the the BBC website's got guides to all the stories, but everyone's got their own, or not everybody, there's lots of uh, people's own takes on each story. Um, a lot of people yeah. have done, you know, you've got the uh, Adventures uh, of the Wife in Space, and if you've ever read that blog. Um, I, I bought a book yeah. recently. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I particularly like the wife's interjections. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're they're absolutely brilliant. Um, and I guess maybe it's me move, moving more towards that kind of uh, that opinion type thing as well. Because I haven't read them yet, but there's the Running Through Corridors, um, which I think is the first two volumes at least out of, which is Rob Shearman and Toby Haydock. Um, yeah. Which is their their take on. Um, I think they do the 60s and the 70s doing a decade at a time. Um, actually, I was preparing for this. I downloaded a preview from Amazon onto my Kindle, and it does look like it's going to be really, really funny, so I must, I must pick that book up. Um, but, yeah, I guess there's more. You get more now blogs and things. It's more of a, a personal reaction to things, isn't it, than... Yep. Um, and, a, and any old person can do a, do a podcast, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Any any idiot can do one, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's yeah, so much material, isn't there oh. now? It used to, it would be fanzines. I, I have a visitor. My my niece has just arrived. Hello, Raya. Uh, hello. So fa- yeah. family's just coming in. I think oh, no they're, they're heading back down the road. Do you want some Peppa Pig? All right, Peppa Pig. That's yeah. that's a reference guide I need to buy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But cool. um, but it's been really nice to talk to you today, Mark. You too. So, um, no problem. Well, we'll uh, we'll have you back on soon. That'd be really Find nice. Thank you very much. That's great. Enjoy so, the rest of your day. Sorry to cut this short, but small people have invaded. No problem at all. So, Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Cheers. It's been a real pleasure, Mark. Thank you for asking me to come and talk to you, with you today. Thanks for your time. Take care. Yeah. Bye, bye now. Bye. And you can find Lawrence on Twitter as at lol73, L-O-L-L-73. The Highlanders podcast is feeksby.podbean.com. That's F-E-E-X-B-Y. Um, they're not coming out at the moment while the series isn't on air, but there's a, a huge back catalogue of excellent episodes to find there. The Trap One podcast will be back in two weeks' time when Kate Coleman will be joining me to discuss Kevin Scott's 12th Doctor novel, The Shining Man. Thanks for listening. See you then. Thank you.